I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. So I just got this really cool new pair of leggings from blissbodyshop.com, and I just wanted to tell you all about it because they're super cool, and um, they ended up giving me a little code so you all can try them for 15% off. So it's blissbodyshop.com, B-L-I-S-S, blissbodyshop.com. And if you enter Zibby Owens 15, Z-I-B-B-Y-O-T, W-E-N-S-15, you will get 15% off of these leggings. And I wear leggings all the time on the weekends uh, with my big oversized vest and some sort of comfy sweatshirt or something to run around and chase my kids. And I travel in them a lot. And um, I mean, who doesn't need leggings? And I should mention that I work out in them, but I do that far less than all the other things I do. Anyway, go check it out, blissbodyshop.com and use the code ZibbyOwens15 and get yourself some leggings. I'm thrilled to be here today with Chris Bajelian, who's the New York Times bestselling author of 21 books, including his most recent novel, The Red Lotus. His other books include The Flight Attendant, The Guest Room, and Midwives, which was a number one New York Times bestseller and a selection of Oprah's book club. Midwives, along with Secrets of Eden and Past the Bleachers, have all been made into movies. The Flight Attendant is in development as a limited series. His work has been translated into 30 languages, and he's also a playwright. He currently lives in Vermont with his wife. So welcome, Chris. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. This is great. So your new book is The Red Lotus. Would you mind telling listeners what it's about? The Red Lotus is my favorite kind of book. It's a ticking clock thriller, the story of Alexis Remnick, a New York City ER doctor who goes on a bike tour of Vietnam with her new boyfriend, and he disappears. And in his absence, she discovers that Almost everything she knew about him was a lie, and she is in spectacular amounts of danger. Never what you want to find out when you take a a trip with a new uh, (laughs) paramour. (laughs) No, absolutely not. Oh, my gosh. And I was wondering if you were a biker or a spinner, and then I saw on Instagram a picture of you biking in Vietnam. Was that to, to prepare for this? Was, are you a biker? or I'm a crazy serious cyclist. I will cyclist. bike. That's the better word. Sorry. No, biker is fine. Biker is absolutely fine, too. I will ride 3,500 miles a season in Vermont on my bike. So when I decided that I wanted to explore a novel in Vietnam, it seemed natural to research it on my bike. I do my best work in some ways on my bike. I don't recall who said this, but someone once said, the most important tool a writer can have is a walk. For me, it's a bike ride. I do so much thinking about my characters. Who's going to live? Who's going to die? What are their anxieties? What are their dreads? What is their heartbreak? I've pulled over on the side of the road on my bike so often and written whole scenes on my iPhone. Wow. They need like a iPhone case or something so you could just type as you pull over, you know, like a... Conceivably, <laughs> conceivably, though I certainly don't mind just dictating whole scenes. Oh, you dictate? That's I do. Interesting. I was picturing you pushing in all the... I've done that too. I've done that too, especially if it's just a character observation. And do you feel like you see things differently when you're on your bike? Like if you're in Vietnam, getting in such a granular level versus like just whizzing through the country in a car? And... What a beautiful expression on a granular level. Yes, that is precisely it. The conversations that I had with the people I met in Vietnam, 
were really different because you just pull over on your bike. And the conversations you can have are just so interesting and intense and surprising when you spend two or three or four days with someone on a bike. I remember one of my guides chatting with him on the third day of our ride. And I said to him, what did your mom, dad do in what we call the Vietnam War and you call the American War? And he said, my parents were both Viet Cong. They were building the Ho Chi Minh Trail. They'd build it, you'd bomb it. They'd build it, you'd bomb it. And of course, that went on for years. And I just loved chatting with him and learning about what his childhood had been like and what his parents' experience had been like. And what drew you to Vietnam for this book to begin with? Do, like, do you have a personal connection to Vietnam? I know your character, Austin, has family, who, his dad and his uncle, who both had been in the war. Do you have family? or Has anyone no, been in the war? I have no family who served in the Vietnam War. My father and my, my uncles were all in the army, but they were all... You know, they, they timed it so that they were they were they were not part of the Vietnam War. The book had its origins when I was having lunch with a neighbor of mine in my Vermont village, and the Ken Burns remarkable documentary on the Vietnam War had recently aired, and so our conversation rather naturally gravitated there. He was a Vietnam veteran, and I started asking him questions, and he started telling me stories. He was one of those guys who, when he'd been a kid, had been a gunner on a helicopter, sitting on his helmet or his flak jacket so that his most private parts would be protected from ground fire. And he saw friends die and he saw helicopters crash. He saw the Vietnamese children with birth defects we know now were likely the result of Agent Orange. And he said to me so many times, And so many Vietnam veterans I interviewed for this book said this to me so many times. I never told anyone that. No one asked me that. Never told my wife that. And I knew I wanted to write a book about the legacy of the Vietnam War. It wasn't going to be a war novel. Carl Merlantis and Tim O'Brien and and Viet Nguyen, they've given us those. The world doesn't need me to add that to the bookshelf. But I knew that one of the parts of my next book was going to involve the legacies of the Vietnam War. And so I went there. Wow. And how much research goes into your books? I know you've written 21 books at this point. How, like, for example, this one, how much research, how long do you spend researching versus the actual writing? I will usually spend at least three weeks or four weeks researching a book before I write a word just so I can understand if the concept is viable, if what I'm thinking I want to do makes sense. And then I will begin to write. And I will be doing so much research as I am writing. I've never had writer's block But I've had those mornings where the scene just isn't working. And usually that's because I haven't done my homework. And so for this book, in addition, of course, to interviewing human beings on both sides of the Pacific who witnessed the Vietnam War, it meant researching the emergency room. And oh my gosh, did I love interviewing ER doctors. 
I mean, it felt so real the way you described the scenes. Even just in the beginning, in the opening, all the different people coming in. I was thinking to myself, I wonder if he had just, if you positioned yourself in an ER for days on end and watched this, or if you just talked to people about it, or was it both? It was both. It was both. I had, I interviewed a lot of ER doctors and I, I enjoyed chatting with them immensely. If there's an ER doctor in your world, you have to drop everything and say, what is the weirdest thing you've ever experienced or seen? And, you know, invariably, they're going to begin with a story about an inappropriate object in an orifice. And very often, they're even, <laughs> very often, they're even going to have an x-ray of the object in the human body on their phone. But then they will tell you the stories that are either unbelievably beautiful, because the thing about ER doctors is their spectacular empathy. We all talk about them as adrenaline junkies, and many are. But they see us at our worst. They see us when we're in pain, when we're embarrassed, when we've done something stupid, when we're bleeding. They, you know, if we're a senior citizen at an ER, you might have a diaper that needs to be changed. If you're a young person, your breath might be toxic. And they are unbelievable multitaskers. They might have seven, eight, nine individuals in cubicles who they have to be vaguely aware of what the heck is going on. And they've all got great senses of humor. I mean, okay, here are two, two things I just loved learning about the ER in New York City. What are two of the most likely reasons you are to go to an ER in Manhattan over the weekend? Number one, tripping over your pet. No. Yep. Number two, slicing a bagel. <laughs> I mean, really, I shouldn't laugh. No, but you wouldn't expect that. I laughed too. I know, I was thinking gunshot wounds. Of course, yeah. that's what you think. And of course, they've all seen horrific gunshot wounds and they've dealt with horrific gunshot wounds, but they've also dealt with, you know, the senior citizen who tripped over his or her, you know, best friend dog. And they've dealt with, you know, the 19-year-old who sliced the heck out of her finger, you know, slicing a bagel one morning. They're just amazing to me. And, and, and here's the other thing that fascinated me about ER doctors. And it was an ER doctor who pointed this out to me. Especially years ago, an ER doctor was first and foremost a detective. Mm. It was all about pattern recognition. And he reminded me, think about Arthur Conan Doyle. The creator of Sherlock Holmes was a physician. No surprise then. <laughs> I, was, I was fascinated by that. One thing I always wonder when I'm in the ER, because I'm sure everybody... We all I, have. We've all been there Absolutely. at certain times. And the intensity of it is so much. And I usually, I can't wait to get out of there. It's like... It, it's, I, it's too much for me. And I wonder, like, how do people who work here just leave? How do they punch out at the end of the day and go out to dinner? Like, how do you transition back into sort of civilian life when you're in this war zone atmosphere day in, day out? Like, what kind of effects long-term does that have on a, on a person? I found it so interesting in your book how Alexis actually uses that adrenaline to sort of get over her own mental health issues and her anxiety and how she used to cut herself. And she attributes like the helpfulness of, of the adrenaline of the ER to, to, to helping her get through that. So what did you, what did you find in that? Okay. You said, you that said, was a long question. I'm sorry. No, it's a great question. And you, you pointed out a couple of things that are absolutely brilliant and, and spot on. First of all, if you're an ER physician, you often don't get the closure. 
the way other kinds of physicians do. You bring a lot more home with you in different ways because you will often leave somebody in the cubicle. You've done everything you can, and now you're waiting for the neurologist to arrive, or you're writing for, waiting for their specialist to arrive, or you're waiting for the OR to open up. That's the first bit of interesting trauma that ER doctors learn to manage. Mm -hmm. Secondly, the utter unpredictability of what you're going to see. You might do a shift where it's pretty chill. You take care of a couple of kids who are brought in by their parents with fevers, and you take care of the fever. You might deal with some people who think they have the coronavirus, and it's the flu, and you're done. But then, yes, then there's the horrific car accident. There's the violent, unexpected shooting. And all of a sudden, you look at the ER, and it looks like a MASH unit. And those are the kinds of moments that if you're an ER doctor, you either take enormous satisfaction that I helped keep that person alive. And then there are the moments when you realize there's nothing I could do, and you call it. And you have to go out from the ER into the waiting room and tell someone, a spouse or whomever, that we did everything we could but it wasn't enough. You had this one quote in the book about a patient who had had, I think, a coronary artery and had a stroke. And I don't know, I, I don't, don't even, I'm not even going to try to do the medical terms, but you said you just never know when a stroke was going to leave you a stringless marionette on the dining room floor beside the half-eaten remains of your supper, which is what happened to this man. And so that's how you learn how to live your life a little differently. Do you feel like you take that with you as a, guiding principle? I do. I've taken that with me as a guiding principle, however, not simply from writing this book, but simply because I'm now on the the far side of 50. And when you're on the far side of 50, you lose people. They die. Your friends die. Your parents are, are, you know, might be near death or have just died. And so, yeah, I really do try to live my life on the assumption that if I have a stroke right now, is the last thing that I've done decent and kind, and, or, or at least not unbelievably horrific, is the last thing that I've done in my life isn't said something unbelievably untoward and awful. So it do, does it make you make big decisions? It does make differently, me differently, or it, just. Yeah, it does make me make big decisions differently. This stage in my life, if there's something I care about, I do it. If I want to see lions in the Serengeti, I go. If there's suddenly tickets to see Emoji Land, I'm going to go right now. It's just life is short and it's precious. And, and I definitely approach life that way. And certainly writing The Red Lotus encouraged that. I, I think it will encourage readers also because it sometimes just the reminder of it helps. I mean... I feel like when there are times and periods of loss where you get that clarity that, oh my gosh, like nothing is promised and this could, this could be it. And then you live that way for a little while, but then it's easy to become kind of lulled into the fake security of, of life everlasting. <laughs> I don't remember which Bill Bryson memoir it's in, but Bill Bryson has got this howlingly funny observation about that. He's flying into a tiny little airport 
in West Lebanon, New Hampshire. It's when he was living in New Hampshire. And he's on this little regional jet. And they're bumping around like crazy. And it's a horrifying flight. It's one of those 45 minutes where you're just miserable. You're nauseous and, and you're terrified. And, and he says to himself, God, if I land, I'm going to really be a decent person. I'm really going to be a decent person. And he lands and he's grateful and his wife meets him and she gives him a big hug. And he, she says, I made meatloaf for dinner. He says, meatloaf? I friggin' hate meatloaf. Why in the name of God have you made me meatloaf? And he, and he realized that we are incapable of being our best selves for 45 seconds. <laughs> and I, I often feel that way. <laughs> I do. But that's why that's such a nice idea, just to live your life making sure the last comment was something kind. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's much easier and much more of a, not easy, but actionable than I'm going to take big trips to Africa whenever I get the chance. I mean, wouldn't Twitter be a better place? Wouldn't Twitter be a magnificent place if everybody said, okay, if this is the last tweet I'm ever going to send, what do I want it to say? I feel like they should just get rid of Twitter. It's such an angry place. I'm like, why does the, why do we need this? It just stirs, it's like, it stirs the pot. That's all it does. It's like, yeah. it's like a friend you want to just, you know, not be friends with anymore. <laughs> I no, I understand completely. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't say that, but so I found it so interesting. So your daughter reads your audiobooks. Is that true? My daughter is a spectacular actor and a spectacular audiobook reader, and she reads a lot of my audiobooks. She doesn't read all of them. For example, she doesn't read The Red Lotus. Penguin Random House Audio are, you know, the producers and the directors there are fantastic, and they're going to use my amazing Grace experience when she is the right voice, as she was for the Russian assassin Elena in The Flight Attendant or the Armenian sex slave in The Guest Room or Emily Shepard in Close Your Eyes, Hold Hands. But if they want an older-sounding voice, such as Alexis Remnick in The Red Lotus, they will use a different reader. But I'm always so thrilled when Grace Experience reads one of my audiobooks because she's just, she's just such a great actor and such a great narrator. And is that what you, did you name her Grace? Where did the, did she, what's a stage name? What's what you gave her? Her full, okay. I am married to the immensely talented artist, Victoria Bluer. Our daughter's full name is Grace Experience Bluer. Victoria and I decided if we had a boy, we will give him my last name. If we have a girl, we will give her Victoria's last name. Now, the experience is her middle name and it's a family name, though... My family, my Armenian half of my family, has only been in this country since the early part of the 20th century. You know, I'm a grandson of survivors of the Armenian Genocide. Victoria's family literally goes back to 1620 and Brewster. And Brewster had some, I don't remember whether they were grandchildren or great-grandchildren, because now we're in the middle part of the 17th century. And among the grandsons was a man named Experience, great sort of, you know, 17th century New England name. And my wife and I just thought, okay, we have to use that. It's just, how could we not use that? And just over time, Grace went from Grace to Grace Experience. And yes, that, that is her Screen Actors Guild name and her equity name is Grace Experience. So cool. She's so cool. I bet. I saw, I was, saw her pictures, not to stalk her. <laughs> no, it's okay. And she's in one of your plays, right? She's actually been in two of my plays. Two of your plays. She starred with K.K. Glick, Odd Mom Out, you know, that great great sitcom, mm -hmm. in Grounded, directed by Alexandra Dinalaris at 59 East 59. And she just closed Midwives at the George Street Playhouse. She played Anne Austin, the Midwife's Apprentice. I remember reading Midwives when it came out. 
and I have not forgotten it. it was, well, thank I you. I mean, I know I'm one of a zillion people who read that book, but anyway. I, I love, I, you know, in some ways, there's a link between Midwives and Red Lotus, and it's Connie Danforth, the narrator of Midwives, and Alexis Remnick, the main character of the Red Lotus. They're both physicians. They are both damaged. They are both really, really strong women who are trying to understand an injustice. The difference is that Midwives is a a courtroom drama and The Red Lotus is a thriller. But I definitely view Alexis Remnick as a literary descendant of Connie Danforth. Maybe that's why this book is so good. I mean, they're all good. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. How did you become, and this is a very big question, but how did you get to be such a good writer? Do you feel like your first book was as good as this or do you feel like you're getting better as you go? Do you feel like it's something you learned in school or you were born this way? First of all, thank you. Second of all, I am responsible for the single worst first novel ever published, bar none. (laughs) There is no book worse than A Killing in the Real World. It's terrible. My first three books, A Killing in the Real World, Hangman, Past the Bleachers, as well as another book from that era, which was not published, are just train wrecks. They're, They're terrible. Malcolm Gladwell in Outliers talks about 10,000 hours. And I think it's worth noting that I once calculated it. When I started writing Midwives, that was, I'd been writing fiction about 10,000 hours. John Gardner in The Art of Fiction talks a lot about how being a good writer is a bit like being a good tennis player. If you work at it, you can get really, really good. Now there are you know, the Andre Agassiz and the Rafael Nadal's, you know, the Serena Williams of the world who are just genetically born to be tennis stars. They're just, that's just who they are. That's what's in their DNA. But they still, of course, had to work like crazy. And not every human being, no matter how much they work, is going to become Margaret Atwood. That's just a reality. But all of us, all of us can become a lot better writers by writing very often. I write every day and I've written almost every day of my life since, gosh, you know, I graduated from college. I mean, my first jobs were in advertising, and I would write from 5 to 7 a.m. in the morning before going to J. Walter Thompson in New York City to to do my day job. And then Monday and Tuesday nights when I came home from work, I wrote my first three novels working at ad agencies. Wow. And, and the best part, okay, fun fact, the best part of the worst novel ever, A Killing in the Real World, is the one blurb on the back because the one blurb on the back was from a person who worked at J. Walter Thompson with me. I was the very, very bottom of the, the pyramid and assistant account executive. This person was the creative director, but you know he'd published four or five books at the time, and he was gracious and kind enough to blurb my terrible book. It was, drumroll, James Patterson. No way. Yeah. Wow, it's impressive. It's the best part of the book, his blurb, by far. <laughs> I worked at Ogilvy and Mather and also Young and Rubicam when I was just starting out. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Okay, well, uh, you know, I was doing it in the Mesozoic era. But, <laughs> but you know, I'm, I'm, I love the fact that we share that madman, madwoman DNA. Isn't that great? Did you love it? I loved it. I loved the figuring out, like, what inspires consumer behavior, what makes people buy certain things, understanding all that, like, the psychology behind it and how to make that research and turn it into a campaign. And okay. I just thought it was so neat. Creative department, account management, media, I was research. in brand strategy. Brilliant. Love it. Which was really fun, but not for very long, but it was great. <laughs> well, well, I was responsible for some of the 
most ridiculous line extensions imaginable. I won't bore you with them, but, <laughs> but off the phone, I've got to tell you some of, the, some of the tragedies, consumer product tragedies that are on my resume. Yeah, well, no. In the brand planning department, I got to do like Pepperidge Farm cookies and Perfect. Um, I did a toy company. There's nothing better than a mint Milano. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It is the great cookie. I like chessmen a lot. Oh my God, yes. My grandmother always has those in the same cabinet my entire life. So there's something very <laughs> nice about that. I agree, chessmen's a great cookie. So in terms of advice, people should write all the time and they will get better the more they work at it. Is there any other advice you would have? Yeah, you know, this is something I think about a lot. And here's one piece of advice that I've given for a lot of years, but here's a piece of advice I think about a lot more in 2020 than I ever thought about in 2014. Here's the piece of advice I've thought about forever. Read what you love and write in the genres, the, the genre that you love. If you love romance, then for crying out loud, write a romance. If you love science fiction, write romance. If you love literary fiction, write literary fiction. But you have to write what you love to read and read vast amounts in that, in that genre. Now, my writing has changed a lot since Midwives. And it's changed a lot in the last decade because of streaming television and the digital age. I write differently now than I did 20 years ago because of Mad Men and Sopranos and the marvelous Mrs. Maisel and Secession, just so many spectacular television shows that are now in existence. And what I mean is that, specifically, is that when my books work, and God knows they don't always work, <laughs> but when they work, they are about two things, heartbreak and dread. And because of programs like Breaking Bad and The Sopranos and Mad Men, my books begin with a level of dread that they did not used to begin with. And they do that because as a reader and as a viewer, I find dread the ultimate thing to, that makes me turn the pages. Hmm. I mean, think of The Red Lotus and how much of The Red Lotus. I mean, the first hundred pages of The Red Lotus is the dread of what has happened to Austin, mm -hmm. Alexis Remnick's boyfriend who's disappeared. That's what it's about, dread. And then the second two-thirds of the book are about, is Alexis going to get out of here alive? And I love that. And then there's that heartbreak notion. So much of Mad Men isn't just about dread, but it's about heartbreak mm -hmm. and all the bad choices that we make. You know, I, th I think secession works because it's about heartbreak. And I hope that to a certain extent, the underlying layer of the Red Lotus beneath all that dread is heartbreak. Heartbreak about Alexis realizing how little she knew about Austin. Alexis trying to overcome those childhood demons you, you brought up so eloquently when we started to speak. Wow. So what are you working on now? I've got a lot going on now, and it's really fun. I've got a, a new book coming out in 12 months, which is about the first divorce in North America for domestic violence. It's called The Devil Herself. It's set in 1662 Boston. I've got 
a couple TV series in development, none of which I actually have anything to do with at all, which is, which is fine because the smarter people than me who know more about these things than me are making them. The flight attendant is well on the way. I think they've probably filmed at least the first four or five hours, and that will start streaming on HBO Max, starring the amazing Kaylee Cuoco, Michelle Heisman, Rosie Perez, Merle Dandridge, T.R. Knight, just a great, great cast. I can't reveal the details here, but The Red Lotus has its movie TV deal. Yes, excellent. And I've got a play that just closed at the George Street Playhouse that I'm going to be workshopping this summer based on my novel Midwives to take it to the next level so that hopefully it will be in New York City in the next 12 to 18 months. Fantastic. That's great. Oh, I can't wait for all your new stuff. Thank you. <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Elizabeth, thank you for all that you do to celebrate what words and reading and books can mean to the soul. You're just crushing it, reminding us how beautiful books are. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Just a reminder, go to Bliss Body Shop and enter code zibbyowens15 and get yourself a new pair of leggings for 15% off. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Production for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Mm-hmm.